In this uh, Lenten season, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and we heard the scriptures read by our children this morning. As we hear again of Jesus' arrest and his trial, and we heard some new information this morning about what happens in that trial, how he's being questioned, and how he is struck by someone who does not like the answers that he's hearing. This morning's text comes from John 18, 23. Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, then testify to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? The question that was on the screen during the the break, for those of you who are sitting quietly and didn't really feel like talking to someone, you you saw the question on the screen, which was, what's your reaction to things that you don't want to hear? What's your reaction to things that you don't want to hear? I think we all react differently in different situations. There's a story in, um, in our lives, Kathy and I and our family, there's a story in our lives that really popped into my mind as I was thinking about this, you know, um, how we react to situations and things we don't like. And that has to do with, we were living in South America, we had a cat. And that cat roamed the grounds of where we were living and apparently roamed the neighborhood. And the people in our neighborhood thought that our cat was contributing to the increase of the cat population. And they would let us know this by dropping boxes full of kittens over the fence into our yard. (laughs) Now, to be fair, the kittens that were dropped into our yard were the same color and same general appearance as our cat. We thought, well, okay, this has happened a few times now. We should take responsibility for this. And so uh, we had a connection with someone who was, uh, worked at a veterinary school. And so we made arrangements to take our cat. His name was Wilbur. We made arrangements to take our cat to the vet school where they would fix the problem, if you know what I mean. Somehow Wilbur knew what was going on and didn't want anything to do with it, apparently. The day came. I was off doing something else, and so Kathy was the lucky one that had to find a way to convince the cat to get into the box to go to the vet. The cat knew what was up, wanted nothing to do with it. We're in South America. We didn't have a nice kennel or anything, so she had a nice cardboard box. She had some holes in it and uh, managed to get Wilbur and get him into the box and get it closed and tape it shut. Boy, the cat was not happy. There was a lot of yowling. Is that the right word, yowling? And there was a lot of activity and the paws were coming through holes and trying to shred open that that box. Now the thing was that where we were, when you want to go somewhere in Santa Cruz, you get into a taxi. So Kathy got into a cat a taxi with this box of this cat that was screaming and upset and took it all the way to the vet school. The vet school is on a campus with other, uh, with other uh, various training facilities as well. She had to walk across the campus with this screaming box, got it to the vet school, and they, they managed to get the cat out. They actually they sedated him because he was... He was so, so, so freaked out. 
he tried to take down anyone and anything that was affecting him. Once he was sedated and they had a look, they said, oh, he's already been fixed. <laughs> if you want more details and more emotion about how that story went, you can talk with Kathy. I fortunately didn't have to deal with any of it. But that cat knew. It knew something bad was supposed to happen. And when it knew that something was going to happen that it did not want to happen, what did it do? It did everything in its power to get out of that box and to take down, to preserve itself. to strike out, to lash out. That's why they say the most dangerous kind of an animal is one that's cornered, right? And that's what I think is happening here in this story. At Jesus' trial, Jesus is the one in chains or tied. He's the one that's being questioned. He's the one that's on trial, but he's not the one who's cornered. As we heard last week, Jesus has submitted himself to the will of the Father and he says, if this is the way, God, then this is what I will do. I will drink the cup that you have given me. The ones who are cornered here are the high priest and the Pharisees and the officials because what they have in front of them in this man, Jesus, is someone who's going to tear it all down. Their power over others, their authority in their society, the structures and systems of the temple. It's all going to be overturned through the Messiah that is coming. They are the ones who are cornered here. And I think it's no surprise that when they are cornered and they realize just how dangerous this is for them, that they lash out in all kinds of ways. It's not surprising then that when Jesus speaks truth and he says, why are you questioning me here in this sketchy trial thing? I was in the synagogues day after day teaching. I was in the temple speaking in front of you. You were there. You heard me. If there were problems, if you wanted to confront me, I was there. So why, when I say I have hidden nothing, do you strike me? George Orwell, in a book that we have heard many of many times called 1984, says this about our human nature. We are all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then when we are finally proved wrong, we impudently twist the facts so to show that we are right. We as human beings have this deep, deep, inclination to preserve ourselves and our realities. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt or why. 
or how we will preserve ourselves. We as humanity construct our own versions of reality in which we can rationalize why we are the righteous ones and they are the problem. They are the enemy. In this age of social media and access to information that's so easy, I've been hearing and seeing a lot about toxic personalities, toxic relationships. And one of the things that gets talked about a lot these days is narcissists. Have you heard and seen a lot about narcissists lately? A narcissist has, there's a whole definition around it, but at its heart, it's someone whose world only revolves around themselves. Everything else in the world is there to serve them and their needs. When you have someone who sees the world in this way, where they are at the center and everything else is about them, what happens when they are confronted with a reality or a truth that they cannot escape? There's a couple common things that happen when they're confronted with truth that they cannot escape. The first is rage. They lash out because of self-preservation. The second is gaslighting, where they try to convince you that you are just seeing things the wrong way, and if you saw it from their perspective, you would agree with them that they're right and you're wrong. And if that doesn't work, then they'll accuse you of the very things that they themselves are guilty of. If that still doesn't work, then they will point the blame in any direction any direction but themselves. They'll throw anyone under the bus that they have to so that they can make it out all right. And a fifth way that they react when none of these other things work is by shunning. Shutting down and giving you the silent treatment, trying to make you feel guilty about having called them out in the first place. If any of those things sound familiar in some of the relationships you're in, you need to give me a call. These are toxic things, but they're common in all of us when we put ourselves at the center of our world. We try to always make sense of the world that we inhabit in such a way that we're the good guys, right? Because if I'm not the good guy, if I'm not the one making the good decisions, then who am I? I can't possibly be the one who's wrong. There's a fantastic book about human psychology that I read a number of years ago. I really recommend that if you can find it, you should read it. It's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. In this book, the authors point out that in the, what they call the horrifying calculus of self-deception, the horrifying calculus of self-deception, the greater the pain that we have inflicted on others, the greater the need that we have to justify it, to maintain our feelings of decency and self-worth. Does this sound familiar to you even in a little way? 
David Fitch, who is a, uh, a theologian from Northern Seminary, has a book called The Church of Us Versus Them. Some of us as, as conference leaders have been reading and studying this book together. And in this book, David Fitch says that what we do so often is that when we see the world through this lens of us versus them, then we create what he calls the enemy-making machine. The enemy-making machine. And this is just as common in the church as anywhere else in our society. He says, because we often gain our identity by who we're against. The ones who gain their identity by being against something, if you took away the enemy, then the crowd, the mob disappears because there's nothing left for them to gather around. Their life would be empty at the core. This way of thinking shapes us as an angry, coercive, and defensive people. The enemy-making machine. We often apply this in our theological conversations. Our disagreements about doctrine, our disagreements about practice and what should or shouldn't happen and how. We find a way to make us the righteous and them the problem. It is no surprise that when we find ourselves in situations where we may experience a loss of power, personal or corporate, or that we might find ourselves being exposed in, in the public, that we lash out with violence or exertion of our own power over and against others. Coming back to this book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, Carol Tavris, the author, says this, not just in a corporate sense, but the way that we apply this in our own lives, certain categories of us are more crucial to our identities than the kind of car we drive. Categories like gender, sexuality, religion, politics, ethnicity, and nationality, for starters. We cling to these identities because they give us meaning. We are defining a reality of who I am, who we are, and who is in and who is out and who belongs and who doesn't belong. She goes on to say that without feeling attached to groups that give our lives meaning, identity, and purpose, we suffer we suffer this intolerable sensation that we are loose marbles floating in a random universe. Therefore, we will do whatever it takes to preserve these attachments. Just like Wilbur the cat, we will do whatever we have to to preserve ourselves and our perceived loss of power, influence, control, identity. In the Gospel of John, which we've been studying, there are seven statements that Jesus makes where he defines who he is, where he speaks the truth of our world and where we find ourselves. 
One of those statements is this in John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Those who are disciples know this. Where we go, what our priorities are, the suffering that we are invited to walk in for the glory of God, the vocations and ministries that we are called to, the calling that God has on our lives, the way that we are called, each and every one of us, to be proclaimers of the good news of the name of Jesus Christ. This is the way of God. And Jesus says, I am that way. Where I go, you follow. Jesus says, I am the truth. We do not get to define our own realities, no matter how much we long to. We do not define our own identity, our own morality and ethical paradigm. It is God through his word and Jesus, the living word, that is authoritative, infallible, and true that describes our realities. Sometimes people will say, how can, you, how can you read the scriptures in that way? It's so full of outdated things. It's so full of contradictions and tensions. There's internal contradictions in the text. One writer says this, another says that. How can you possibly say this is the infallible truth of God? We believe that scripture can be read authoritatively because scripture, all of scripture has a coherent center that is the person and teaching of Jesus which helps us understand all other things. In Jesus, my identity is formed. In Jesus, my ethical and moral paradigm is shaped because the will of God is revealed. In Jesus, we find the life. Life eternal. Life in abundance. True life is only found there with Jesus, in Jesus, because of Jesus. There's no other way. And there is no remedy for our brokenness. There is no remedy for our sin. There is no hope apart from Jesus. These are the words of truth. These are the words of life given to us. And then Jesus says to us, Bound and blindfolded and beaten. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. Jesus is not the one in the corner. It's our imagined realities it's our twistings and turnings of self-preservation which are cornered by the truth of Jesus.
he goes on to say in those verses, if you want to preserve your life, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Lay it down. Lay it down. What good will it be for someone to gain everything and yet forfeit their soul? It's no surprise that the man in the trial struck Jesus when he spoke the truth because everything was at stake. The question is, how do we respond when the words of truth are spoken into our lives? When Jesus comes to us and says, will you follow me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says to you and to me, if I've spoken wrongly, and testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Why do you push back? Why do you try to preserve yourself and the illusions of your life? Come instead to the cross. Follow me, and you will have life eternal. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the truth of Jesus. A truth that confronts our efforts to twist and shape the world in a way that suits us best and just reveals who you are, the God of love, the God of grace, the God of new life, new beginnings, and new hope, and the God who welcomes each and every one to the foot of the cross where in repentance we turn our hearts towards you and call you Lord and Savior. May we be a people that hear your truth and accept and welcome it into our lives so that we may be shaped and formed into your likeness as your beloved children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.